joining us. Hi, Ferret. Hi, Flame. Hi, fandom. Welcome, welcome, everyone, to episode nine, where this time you get to hear us and only us for the entire episode. You're welcome, universe, but (laughs) we'll try to keep it short, but you know us. Yeah. And we're talking about one of our very favorite subgenres of fic today, kid fics. So really, no promises. (laughs) (laughs) We'll start with a creator corner on how to write KidFic and what we recommend keeping in mind as you do that before launching into the plug and discussing two particular stories in the incredible Tales of the Bots verse, stories told with silence and bedtime stories and nightmares. Then it's time for minis. We've got Animal Corner, where I'm going to stay on topic for once and talk about pets and kids. Professor Flame's History Corner is back with a brief history of zines before we do community talks and hear from you guys. Our truly adorable cover art this week is from Kelsix, and it's the perfect setup for our topic. So let's get started. bit of a divisive topic. People seem to love them or hate them with not a lot in between. How kidfic is defined, however, seems to vary a lot. Some people would call anything with a kid in it a kidfic. Some people say the story has to revolve around the kid, but we can all agree that the story has to contain a kid in some way, obvs. And for writers, that means writing kids. Side note really quickly that if there's any artists that want to come on the pod and talk about drawing kids, we would love to talk to you. We're going to talk about a few things in this segment. How kids talk, how kids think and act, and how to write parents. First up, how kids talk. I highly recommend doing a little research if you're writing a kid and you don't have one to base this on. When it comes to mirroring a unique voice like this, you might find that you're someone who does better with facts or maybe you're someone who does better with examples. The best way to get examples is actually YouTube. There are lots of channels about child development and a lot of mommy blog style channels where people just have videos of their kids and they'll say exactly how old they are in the description, sometimes down to the week. If your fictional kid is four years old, just Google video four-year-old talking and just watch a few hits. It's good to get sort of a broad example because it will vary from kid to kid and somewhere in there you'll find the right voice for your kid and it will help get your head in the right place. From a fact perspective, if that means more to you, it's also pretty easy to find charts that let you know which milestones your fake kid should be hitting and when. Thankfully for us, as writers and researchers, it's a question almost every real parent has at some point, so the information is readily available. There's also an entire field of linguistic study called child language acquisition that investigates how kids learn and develop language. The topmost things you should be aware of are the sound acquisition chart, the rate of vocabulary acquisition, and the rate of syntactic development. The sound chart lets you know at which age a kid develops the ability to say certain sounds. For instance, a two-year-old is likely to say, I like this, instead of I like this, because they don't have the dental fricative th for the this, or the lateral l for like yet. We're not gonna dive deeply into whether or not you should write out what your kid characters say phonetically or not. That's a stylistic choice that's between you and your God. But even if you don't write everything out or even anything out, those differences between adult and child speech will change how your kid relates to the adults around them. It'll affect how well they're understood and how they see the world. And they can even be used as plot points if there's a misunderstanding between what a child said and what an adult thinks they said. Next up, we're gonna talk about vocabulary acquisition. 
a kid's first word is generally a really big deal to the people who love them, but it very much goes beyond that. Most kids pick up their first word around one and have about 50 words by two. Their vocab is largely governed by the life they lead and they'll repeat the words they hear the most. Mama, dada, milk, cookie, juice, no, yes. A lot of no, if you're every kid I've ever nannied. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> a, set, <laughs> uh, a set of animals from books, um, like uh, characters from TV shows. We get a lot of uh, Dora. Um, you hear that word a lot from kids who watch a lot of Dora the Explorer. Um, relative words like aunt, uncle, nana are common in the first 50. If your fictional two-year-old is talking, think about what words that they would have heard enough to acquire instead of just what words they would have been exposed to. It's not a kid hears a thing once and then speaks. Even if Tony has an eidetic memory, child brains need to hear things in repetition. So he can't speak in full sentences at two. Just don't do it. The older they get, the more likely it is that they'll parrot back a word that they've heard just once. This is a wonderful running gag. But also keep in mind that kids comprehend before they produce. So they'll generally understand, do you want more juice before they can even say juice? So this is a good reminder that in general, production doesn't equal intelligence or comprehension. Kids frequently get frustrated and upset when it's assumed that they don't understand something simply because they can't say it. They also generally react badly when their mispronounced words are echoed back to them. It sounds to them like mocking, even though they wouldn't know that word. In their underlying representation, i.e. the way the word is formed in their mind, they know it's like and not like, but they can't make their mouth make that sound yet. So mocking a kid for saying like and not knowing what they mean when they say something is a surefire way to get on their bad side. You can use this in your stories. It's a really quick way to show, to demonstrate a shorthand of a character who understands children versus somebody who doesn't. That's a really quick shorthand. By age two, kids will start combining sets of two words into little sentences like me up more juice. These syntactic changes can be the places where poorly written kids show the worst, to be honest. A three-year-old won't be talking in complete sentences with adverbial phrases and embedded clauses, but a five-year-old doesn't say me up. Kids under five are practically changing every day where it comes to language. And even after five, you'll see changes all the way into teenhood and beyond. And I'll remind you here of all the other conversations that Ferret and I have had about language and how it moves and the function it serves in society. Ten-year-olds talk differently today than they did when I was 10. And so that, that is kind of a thing too. If you're writing some, if you're writing a 1990s fic or a 1960s fic, you know this innately, but just be especially careful of it with kids. This means that in order to write kids accurately, you do have to be precise about where you're drawing these examples from and what your research is telling you. Language plasticity declines around 12 years old. So before that, kids are language sponges and they're picking up everything they hear and turning it into data. This is a huge trope in most storytelling, especially when adults curse in front of a child <laughs> and the differences that different families have and what profanity means. And Mrs. So-and-so said this word and my mommy hates it because that's a lot of, they gather every piece of linguistic data they can to try to help them make sense of, of their own world. That's just how their brains work. 
We're going to link some things in the show notes, but if you're writing a kid and you want them to be accurate, your best bet is to search for information specific to their age. A lot of what we've said has been general because it changes so much. So it's out there by the barrel load. I promise you can find stuff even for the specific month that your kid is. And we'll give some broad things in the show notes and then take that as a way to guide you where to find the information that's specific for the kid that you're writing. So now we're going to pivot into talking about how kids think and act. This will affect how they interact with the other kids and adults in the story or what their narrative voice is like if a child is your POV character. Just like with language, kids are sponges for concepts, but they don't always have the context or experience to understand what it is they're absorbing. Fundamentally, kids are extremely self-absorbed in the sense that they lack the ability to understand things outside their own experiences. It takes time and practice and coaching for them to acquire empathy or even understand the concept that other people are, in fact, other people with their own wishes, goals, and preferences that may be different from theirs. They basically see everyone else as an NPC for a while. <laughs> kids are also programmed to learn as much as possible as fast as possible, which means they're often fueled by curiosity. This leads to things like the endless why game, where if you've ever known a kid under six, you've almost certainly played that game. And asking embarrassing questions of people like, what's that on your face? Or why is your dress inside out? <laughs> when other people would politely ignore those things. Beyond language milestones, consider other milestones too. When do babies first smile? Laugh, grasp a finger, point, look where you're pointing. These are all things we might write casually without consideration, but you might actually be surprised to find that some things are earlier than you think and some are later. A finger grasp is often the very first way your baby actively interacts with you. That's a deep-seated instinct to keep primates from falling out of trees, but a laugh usually doesn't come with purpose until three to five months. From a physical perspective, consider how kids move. They lack dexterity, but they're also closer to the ground and have much less fear of falling. <laughs> Under 12 is a great time to learn to do things like skating, skiing, or rollerblading because the ground is close enough that they're unlikely to hurt themselves. With really young kids, watch videos to see how they learn to walk. They're top heavy, big heads and little feet, and they're still learning to balance. Very young children tend to use momentum to their advantage, but that also means they do a lot of tumbling to the ground. And when kids get upset, that is a whole different ballgame. Think of it as a spectrum of emotion with dividers that split things up into specific feelings. As adults, we have a lot of dividers. We can divide upset into scared, frustrated, tired, lonely, a whole bunch of other things. But these are all things that we learned over time. Most of teenagehood is spent adding some of these dividers, which is why teens are often considered emotional and why teenagehood may have been an emotional time for you. It's a redivision, the development of emotional nuance. And that's something that young kids don't have. So a young kid knows only a few broad emotional categories, which means that upset usually lacks those definitive boundaries. They're just upset. They don't know why. Perhaps the most well-known temper tantrum is the I'm so tired, I don't know I'm tired meltdown, where a kid is exhausted but can't yet recognize that that's why they feel crummy. So instead, every tiny inconvenience from it's time for a nap to I can't magically turn your green grapes into red grapes becomes the absolute end of the world. There's a great meme that I think was actually turned into a book called Reasons My Kid Is Crying, and you should check that out if you want to see some of the logical inconsistencies that kids can operate under. Oh yeah, just today, my niece started screaming, and like she's way, way younger than this. She's like four months, but she started mm -hmm. screaming at my brother because my brother gave her the apples instead of the peas. Yeah. 
for lunch and it, it was just screaming, blood curdling. And then the minute the peas were in her mouth, she was happy. Yep. Leads us to believe that she was potentially adopted because nobody in our family likes peas, but that's a difference. A difference. <laughs> Maybe she'll grow out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so writing teenagers is even more complicated than writing children, to be honest, because the process of maturing is both hormonal and cultural. So responsibility can be as much how the kid was raised in that they're ready for abstract concepts like that. But developmentally, we as humans do not possess the ability to understand abstract concepts until 13 at the absolute youngest as a rule. And abstract concepts are things like doing good, um, emotional nuance, that there is gray areas in conversations. All of this is just impossible before you hit a very specific developmental hormonal milestone. Death is particularly hard for preteens because they're just beginning to understand the concept of abstract permanent, like a permanent something, but they can't fully live in that, in that phase. Of course, if a child has been introduced to trauma at a really young age, which is relevant for most of the characters that most of us write, all of that is a little bit different and might not matter because trauma rewrites people's brains and it can accelerate or retard emotional development depending on the child. This would be particularly uh, important, for instance, if you had canon that Howard was abusive to Tony, or that you take Clint's comic storyline of having an abusive family, Bruce's abusive father, or, or like the Red Room <laughs> for Nat, yeah. um, and kind of just, if you want to play with those specifically, understand that trauma is a separate bullet point underneath all of this. So let's do some really broad brushstrokes though. Teens are often stuck between adulthood and they are craving to be adult, but they still need comfort like a child. A teenager frequently doesn't understand what's happening in their own skin or necessarily feel in control of it. It's like what Ferret was saying earlier about the dividers. But whether this was true for you in particular or not, the process of adolescence is a process of rapid hormonal change. And it's very, very normal for somebody to feel very confident in who they are and like who their friends are and everything at like 9 a.m. And then by, by 2 a.m. something has changed and everything has crumbled. <laughs> and that doesn't mean the child is weak or that the child is dramatic. It probably means there was a hormonal imbalance at the exact wrong moment. And coping skills are something we have to learn for our emotions. They're not innate. So... For instance, when we think about the MCU, in particular Marvel, this misunderstanding of your own body is one of the reasons that Peter Parker works really well as a character, as a teenager specifically, because the way he has to learn to control his powers is a really good allegory for having to control his hormones. Voices change, bodies change, things feel mysterious, sexuality is a question, Menstruation, for example, is starting younger and younger. The average age in the U.S. was in the, 19, in the 1990s was 14, and now it's 11, for example. And a lot of foods that we all eat have antibiotics and chemicals that adversely affect adolescent development in particular. And everyone keeps talking about the future to these kids, especially in America. You start getting asked what you want to be when you grow up, when you're like two, and by the time you hit like seventh grade in the United States, it's entirely possible that you are preparing specifically for college. So you are 11 or 12 years old, and this is the same in Northern Ireland, for instance, you take an exam at 11 years old that literally sets you up if you're gonna go to university or not. 
but it's very common these days in westernized countries for us to put insane amounts of pressure on 11 to 13 year olds to know what they want to do when they are 40. They can't grasp the future. Their bodies, their, their hormones, their chemistry, it literally doesn't let them. And so it's this petrifying and yet exciting thing that they don't know how to deal with. So it's everything is possible and yet nothing is possible at the same time. I know this makes you all want to go back and relive your adolescence, <laughs> um, but maybe if you've never thought about it before, this might explain some of why it was a hellscape for you. Perhaps it was wonderful. And I, I am always, I always love to hear when people had positive adolescent experiences. Mine were generally not. So I love it that, that mine is maybe not normal. Anyway, unlike with children where the references on the internet might be really helpful, the references for teenagers might be less so, especially because with teenagers in particular, Hollywood has really kind of fucked us all up here because the average age of somebody playing a teenager in Hollywood is like 25. In not another teen movie, Chris Evans filmed it when he was 26. <laughs> so like, it, it doesn't, the bodies look weird. Everything looks odd. Now, TikTok, definitely your friend. YouTube, your friend. But also remember the cultural realities of teenagers are the cultural realities affect teenagers often more than young children in terms of personality and and uh, hobbies and um, vocal tics and things like that it varies a little bit more the the older the older that people so teenagers are now generation z um, and there is loads of data out there also about how that generation is reacting to the world versus millennials which are you know mid like early to mid 20s to mid 30s versus gen x which is mid 30s to early like to late 40s those kind of broad categories but generations are their own cultures so if you're really looking to write a teenager and you in particular are in your 30s right now teenagers now don't react to things or the world the same way we did when we were younger because the world has literally changed at least 27 times so doing a quick Google around about some of the more common patterned reactions might be really helpful as you're thinking about it. <laughs> Lastly, I wanted to mention that because we're talking about Marvel here, you might be writing extraordinary kids. And that of course changes some things. If you're working with a tiny Tony, say, or a tiny Peter, you might be asking, how do I show that he's smarter than the average bear cub? You may have also heard a lot of people say that they don't like reading kid fic because of too perfect, precocious children. Well, while there's no one-size-fits-all answer, I can confidently say, don't just write them as an adult in tiny form. No matter how brilliant a child is, unless this is a physical de-aging situation where he's quite literally a tiny adult, children lack necessary experience and development that makes them different from adults, even if they're geniuses. But most people actually mean when they complain about precocious children in fic, isn't that the kid is too smart, but that the kid lacks a childlike view of the world to contextualize their intelligence. A brilliant child may master long division at four, but will still think that kissing is yucky and that Santa is real. Precocious children can show signs of genius in different ways. It's not uncommon for precocious kids to pause in development until they're actually behind their peers and then suddenly take a big leap past them and then pause again. So you might have a child who has advanced language skills, but doesn't have the emotional development to contextualize what they're understanding. A kid may start reading books well past his experience and ability to understand from an emotional perspective. Even though he can understand fundamentally what the words mean, he can't contextualize them. 
It's not uncommon for a child who is precocious in, say, math and science to struggle with emotional and social de development and even be behind his peers in that regard. So if you're writing a brilliant kid and you're not sure how to show that they're still a kid, think about context and perspective. Show their areas of inner inexperience due to lack of life or restrictions from parents or a four foot tall view of the world. Give them areas where they do struggle and consider that gifted kids of all ages often struggle with the very concept of struggling and prefer to avoid things they find hard because they're used to so many, quote, hard things being easy for them. Also, don't forget that some stages are pretty written in stone. Kids need developed enough eyes to read, developed enough mouths to speak, developed enough bodies to move, and developed enough brains to manage emotional complexity. And all of that just takes time. Some intelligence is learned through experience, and you can show that in your story to give your kids depth. And while we're talking about depth, my final note here is that your kids don't have to have depth, just as no character in your fic really needs to. If all you want is a glorified bag of flour and a papoose with a smile painted on it, then go for it. But if your goal is, as a creator is to create convincing kids with enough depth and complexity that they feel like characters and not like props, these are some things you might want to think about. I mean, we all love glorified bags of flour, so just... I, you know, I never had to do that um, thing in school where you had to, like, have a fake baby and take care of it. That was, like, a classic class thing. Like, some kids did eggs, and some have, like, the complicated fake babies that actually, like, cry and report things back to computers and stuff. But I know that, like, some classes did bags of flour as their fake babies. Yeah, we definitely, we had, I had one year where it was like the really fancy electronic babies and one year where it was bags of flour. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, they were really concerned with teenage pregnancy in my school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine not so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're going to also, I mean, if we're going to write kid fic, right, we also are innately writing parents. And parents may seem like one of those things where it's really easy to write them because like, you know, the kids are the challenging part. But I've found just as many descriptions of parents and fix that have made me want to head desk that we wanted to take just a couple seconds to again just offer some things to consider again if you would like to write sentient bags of potatoes by all means you can ignore everything we say all the time really we don't really even understand why you're listening to this we're grateful but like you know um all of this is just stuff to consider as you're thinking about it if your goal is to write a really rich, realized, emotionally complex story, here are some character beats to think of. Parents have to ha have the emotional development that their kids don't have yet. And that also means disagreeing, especially with each other. It's a parent's job to provide boundaries and understand the importance of things like bedtimes, nap times, food, and school. So the if your kid automatically listens to the parent all the time, it's probably not super duper realistic, just in the same way that if the parent thinks the sun completely shines out of the kid's ass all the time and is never uh, like frustrated or aggravated by the child's decision-making, you know, may not also be the most realistic. It's normal for parents to be interns or perhaps even in the exact same conversation amused, frustrated, delighted, aggravated, overwhelmed, completely enamored, all of that with their child's view of the world and how their child is behaving. And since Fair just talked a lot about precocious children and did a great job, keep in mind that it can be really hard to raise a genius. 
they struggle to maintain pot potentially relationships with their peers. If you don't believe me, by the way, go ahead and search on Twitter at any point in time for like gifted and talented children. There's always a, a thread going around of people who were raised or labeled gifted and talented when they were younger. And now that they are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, they are emotionally crippled by anxiety. <laughs> they, are, they are telling a lot of tales about what life was like for them as a child. So there's that kind of data out there too. But if they struggle to maintain relationships, they may push for knowledge or context that their parents aren't really sure of yet. Like realistically, most of us learned about more about sex from our friends or porn or TV than we did from our parents. But if you're a seven year old kid and you don't have friends to ask about like the funny boy parts and girl parts and you ask your parent, the parent may be freaking out and doesn't really know what to do. It may also very, very quickly, their kid may surpass them in school in a certain way. And that can be very, very weird. Like my mother jokes, my mother was a, a professional editor for a little while. And she jokes that like, I pretty much surpassed her when I was in high school in terms of my understanding of literature and grammar and everything else. But it was more based on the way we were being taught. I have a friend who has a incredibly like Mensa statistically brilliant 10 year old. And the last time she was able to help her with her homework, my friend's daughter was six and it is something my friend struggles with all the time and real, not only emotionally, but financially, because they often have to find tutors or she has to spend a lot of time working with teachers or things like that to help make sure her kid has the support that she needs. Teens are also going through the stage of developing independence. So from a parent perspective, um, that can be really hard. <laughs> Um, teens are pushing boundaries and discovering who they are and often are discovering who they are in opposition to their parents. Uh, a very common, you know, reality is that mothers and daughters really struggle during adolescence because the, the, one of the primary definitions of womanhood in a girl's life is often her mother, but she's got a lot of other data around her to determine what womanhood looks like. And the same with, with masculinity, or maleness, or, and then of course we have teenagers who are potentially transitioning, um, potentially trans teenagers, all of those kind of other things, and their relationship with, with potentially cis parents. And then you have the whole idea of teenagers leaving the nest. I don't know a whole lot of parents that actually feel like their kid is totally ready for life to leave the house permanently at 17. Even if they'll tell you that they're permanently ready, they'll still up late and worried and freaking out and all those kind of other things. Becoming an adult is a process that we treat as something like it's a fixed point in time, but it's actually an elongated process. I, for instance, am still not fully an adult, <laughs> but I have been legally one for many years and living on my own. But if there's still a funny smell in my garbage disposal and I don't know what to do about it, I still call my dad. <laughs> like, it's, it's kind of, Adulthood is an, is, is an evolutionary process and parents often struggle with that evolution as much as their kids do. The process if, of becoming, by the way, friends with your kids is something a lot of parents of adult children talk about. And there's lots of articles and things like that. How do you transition from being a disciplinarian to being a sounding board to being a friend? What does that look like? All of that could be really fascinating, especially if you're writing a college fic. So one of the most important things that I would say to remember when you're writing a parent fic, again, if you care about being realistic, you might not hit fast forward, is that parents 
all the time are terrified, overwhelmed, or confused at given times, especially depending on the age of their child. Parenting in teams means a lot of conversations that may seem really mundane, but having Steve and Tony debate where Peter is gonna go to preschool is a completely normal kind of conversation. And could, that eats quite a lot of words if you're writing for an event with a word count and a deadline, and it's not like I'm speaking from experience. <laughs> no way, it's definitely not. Definitely not. Uh, we, neither of us have ever stretched, ever. I have never just created a scene because I needed 5,000 more words. <laughs> ever. Uh, it's super normal for parents to miss their friends and to miss going out as adults and to miss being an adult and not a parent. Tony, as a dad, can be completely besotted with his kid and really miss having time to work uninterrupted in the workshop. Nat could really love being a mom and miss the way her body used to work before she had a kid. Speaking of bodies, pregnancy is hard. Infertility is real. And not everyone wants to be a parent regardless if they have kids or not. It's completely valid to have a fic where the characters get pregnant and it's not automatically happy. Bonding is also not immediate after birth, regardless if the kid is planned or not, adopted or not. Many birth givers struggle with postpartum depression, and many new parents struggle with fears and frustrations also because they're not sleeping. There's also a lot of stigma and guilt around not feeling like perfect parents or even what is a perfect parent, and something as simple as sounding as breastfeeding can be completely immersive for some parents leading to guilt and frustration or social ostracization. If these are things you want to explore, you should. I love reading those kind of things, especially because so many of my friends have children and are exploring these kind of things in their lives. And if we like seeing ourselves in the page and in the things that we love, like we talked about last episode, this is an element of very common to my life that I like seeing on the page. You don't have to write perfect parents who are happy and adore their children all the time. If your goal is realism, adding pain, fear, or frustration, or anger, or regret, are all normal adult emotions that are part of parenting. And actually, because both Fair and I really love the complicated fix about parenting so much, we are going to explore those complicated feelings a little bit more in our next section, The Plug. Today for the plug, we're talking about one of my very favorite universes, The Tales of the Bots by Sci-Fi Girl 47, specifically Bedtime Stories and Nightmares and Stories Told with Silence, which are two of the early stories that introduced DJ as Steve and Tony's child, essentially. These stories are special to me because size works were the very first ones that I read in Stony, and they set me up with a lot of the way that I feel about them, my other ships, the characters I like, the types of tropes and stories I look for. Um, all of that was kind of born from this first place. My first pick was actually in Toasterverse, which is a different verse of hers, um, Four or Five Reasons for Kidnapping Tony Stark. But after I devoured that, I went right on to read all of Tales of the Bots and still adore it and still think it has some of the the best parenting, the best kids, the best complicated Steve Tony characterization that just nails it, the best team, some of the best OCs ever. And it just, um, I, I just love it. I still love it. So I asked Flame to read it so that we could talk about it today. And I'm really excited to do so. 
Yeah. Whereas, like uh, Farrah just insinuated, I read them this week. <laughs> so part of coming into fandom so late is that you've missed a lot of the uh, big, or not late, there is no late, recently is that I've missed a lot of the bigger kind of canonical, these are the greats that were published in years previous. So I really love getting caught up on on stuff. And so I have now also devoured the entire Tales of the Bots verse. I think um, it's interesting that, um, I mean, it's cool that, that there are some things in, that are fanon that are very clearly born out of specific things and specific fix, specific arts or what have you, or specific headcanons from specific fans. Um, but you hit a point in time where the origins of them are lost and uh, people just take them as gospel. I do, I have to do, I, ha- I have to do this. I'm so sorry, people. I have to do this. I did this on Discord and I got yelled at, but Butterfingers is not a real bot. There are not three bots, there are two bots. And part of the reason why people think there's a third bot is because Blesser Sai always puts three bots in the stories. And I think that Tales of the Bots and Toasterverse are to blame for so much of fandom thinking that Butterfingers is a separate bot when it's actually just a nickname Tony uses for dummy once. Canonically, there are only two bots. And I'm sorry if that broke something within you, but I feel like it's important that people are aware of it. By all means, put Butterfingers in your stories. But Dummy and you are the only two bots in canon. Do you feel better? I feel better. I had to get it off of my I had to get it off my chest. Now is the time. It's happened. It's over. Anyone who needs to wipe that from your memories, now is the time to do it. And we're gonna move on. Yeah, I'm still gonna write three bots. So um, <laughs> I don't care. But I'm also the person that like when I read that that Clint hid in the vents, I just assumed that I forgot a scene in the Avengers. <laughs> right. So like, I, know, I, know, I, know. I was like, oh, these people oh. watch the movies more than I do. He must hide it in the vents. Oh no, wait, fandom just invented that. So yeah, and I mean, um, there's, a, there's a history of Tony and Roombas and most of that was started by Psy. So if yeah. you haven't read Sci-Fi Girl stuff, then you're missing out on all of the, the birth of the great Roomba adoration in fandom interesting and you and i have both put tony and roombas in our fix yeah joshua is an homage both to sabers squirrel joshua from cn and to the roombas also to my own roomba whose name is glenn coco and his battery is dead but i still love him because he goes glenn coco yeah he's even got little stickers on him that say you go glenn coco oh i love it he needs a lot of encouragement because he's a he's like a version one roomba and he's not that great but he's a part of the family we love him the, um, I have a Roomba in my very first fic that Tony um, invents entirely to prove a point to Pepper and be ornery. So. <laughs> Sounds on as, brand. As, as on brand, yeah. So, um, so in speaking terms of, of bots. Fic, <laughs> speaking of bots, so I will say for me, the thing that I took away in terms of parenting, the thing that I took away the most and the, like, the kind of my very first gut oh, reaction was that Tony cannot accept that there are multiple versions of parenthood mm. in a way that Steve innately understands. Yeah. And when I headcanon this, and I have no idea if Cy thought of this, but when I headcanon this, this makes complete sense to me because Tony was raised in, as far as we know, even canonically, vague isolation from other adults. Like, he didn't really, there wasn't a neighborhood that he grew up in. There wasn't, like, he saw Howard, and then he saw Stain, and, like, those, and he saw Jarvis-ish, but, like, really, it was Howard. 
Whereas Steve grew up in the 40s in Brooklyn and probably interacted with like 30 kinds of fathers on a daily basis. Right. And so he would have a deeper understanding just innately that like, of course, there's different ways to be a dad. Of course, you're not going to be Howard. And all Tony can see is not only his own pain of Howard and his own neuroses, but like this calcification of that this was the only way to be a dad. And a huge part of Tony's journey in this whole verse is learning how to be a dad and not Howard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, you know, he he struggles with the very concept of having something that he can't protect or fix or control or keep safe in the same way that he could when Dummy was a bot because he doesn't trust himself to be that protective person. He doesn't know how. He never felt safe when he was a child. So how can he make another child feel safe? It's, it feels outside of his toolbox. And I think that actually, like, I, I love how complicated the relationships are here. And I, I love that Steve's natural abilities as a parent both comfort Tony and frustrate him. It makes it harder and easier to co-parent with him. Yeah, that's a great point. And one of the really wonderful things about this fic, the whole series and, and size writing in general, when she writes both with kid fix and sort of the team as a family thing is that every branch, every relationship is different and explored and well done. So you get to see that Tony and Steve have a real relationship and it's affected by DJ, but it doesn't revolve around him. They have their own relationship. Tony has a relationship with DJ. Steve has a relationship with DJ. They have a family unit as the three of them. And then especially as you continue to read on in the series, DJ has a relationship with each of the other Avengers. The Avengers have relationships with Steve and Tony. Like everything, the characterization doesn't just characterize the individual characters it characterizes all the various different branches of all their various different relationships as well in a way that just makes it really rich and deep yeah I mean this is I told you this is quite simply the best found family fic I've ever read yeah I mean it's just like this is one of those fics where like I hit I finished it and I was like well I'm never writing again like why why, why do I bother she's done it all Um, (laughs) but it's just this idea, because like how you just talked is how humans work. Yeah. But it's incredibly complicated to show all of those things in a certain way. Especially um, in like 30K. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, sh- yeah, she's a magician. It's annoying. She's so good, it's annoying. That's really what it comes down to. Um, is that the quote we're going to pull for this episode? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Sci fi girl is so good, I'm annoyed. Yeah. Um, it's okay. I frequently tell other people, like, you're so good at this, I'm angry at you. So. It's kind of like, it's a, it's a, I think it's a, it's a Venn diagram with cute aggression. Like I often, often want to squeeze my dog until she pops because she's so cute and I can't take it. And I think sometimes we get that with other people's writing. It's like, oh, it's so good. I just want to shred it. Yeah. Well, it's once so I got a I comment, wanna... I got a comment yeah. that someone wanted to print my fic out, crumple it up and eat it. And that was their way of showing affection. So. Sure. All yeah. that's children. Yeah. Yep. It's valid. It's valid. <laughs> Um, I so they did. I think, I, yeah, if they <laughs> did, please let us know. Yeah. And please come on to the pod and talk yeah, to us about you, digesting Tell paper. us, have you ever eaten a fic? <laughs> How did <Yeah>. it feel? <laughs> um, I think, so in terms of like Steve and Tony in particular, mm-hmm. and in their relationship, I like that they were 
established-ish when this all started happening. Like, yeah. this was still pretty fresh. And so they were building something together as the two of them that then was interrupted. But, like, instead of just then focusing on them as parents, like, she essentially just acknowledged this detour. And, like, they still, like, it passes the, like, whatever the parental equivalent of the Bechdel test is. Yeah. Like, they still have conversations about them that's not about DJ in a way that, like, I mean, you said this already, but I'm just going to say it again but that feels that like led them to still being them as characters. Like this is a canon adjacent thing. Like this, he's still Iron Man. There's still Cap, there's still the Avengers and all of those dynamics still have to happen regardless of DJ. Um, I in particularly noticed that and saw that in all of the interactions with the CPS agent. Yeah. And in how, like, I love that Coulson just took care of that, because of course he did. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was, like, the most perfect. I could just hear Clark Gregg's voice in my head the entire time it was happening. <laughs> it was just impeccable. She writes great, Coulson. And if you are if you like that, sh- if you go into the Toasterverse, there's also Holly Your Bones Like a Bird, which is like, possibly the best Clint Coulson fic out there. So for people who, who want to keep following the web, that's a great place to go noted i don't ship them at all but i'm fascinated whenever they show up in other fix so i love it you might after you read that one (laughs) i might maybe it's it's a whole ships that i do and do not ship is a separate conversation (laughs) we'll have another time um but because i don't often i have almost no no tps i have a whole lot that i'm completely neutral on yeah, yeah, I'm the same no. way, I'm the same yeah. way. But, you know, as I say, these are my fundamental fix. They built a lot of my fundamental shit. Yeah, so, so. of course, of course. Um, yeah, whereas a lot of my fundamental fix are Stucconi. So, yeah, I, for whatever reason. Took me a long time to even find Stucconi. Yeah, no, dove right into that one real quick. So, <laughs> thanks 2019. It was it was all right there. So, <laughs> uh, but it, But also, in terms of their parenting it has to evolve a whole lot because DJ is, <laughs> is, is uh, a child who's also a robot, who's also a child. Um, and yeah. they have to, but like he still hits a lot of the developmental milestones, but he, also doesn't. Yeah, I think he's a realistic child in the way that he's not cookie cutter. He's not a bag of flour with a smile painted on at all he's much more than a proper a plot device and he's challenged challenging and complicated and in many ways very not normal if you know what i mean by normal like most kids are not also robots so i think we can safely say he's not a normal child i would like to just categorically say that no other child is also a robot except vicky from small wonder like i think (laughs) i think this and that are kind of it so yeah. yeah. So yeah, we can we can confidently acknowledge that. But he also is a child in many ways and he does many things. He has that childlike point of view that we were talking about. He hits a lot of those even if he doesn't hit the milestones, he hits a lot of the perspective things that we were talking about. Everything you can understand from the perspective of a three or four year old who also used to be a robot sometimes, you know, or is a robot sometimes, you know, like it, it, it just, he, he can, how can it such an unrealistic situation make such a realistic child? 
I think my, so the best example of that to me is when he is transitioning between like bot child and teenager in the scene yeah, with yeah. the CPS worker. And he articulates that like he prefers to be the child because he can make mistakes easier. Yeah. And he doesn't really still know what he's doing. Um, and he doesn't know how to follow his prime directive for the creating unit as an, as a teenager, but he knows he has to because like he has to protect them and that's what teenagers do. But mm -hmm. he doesn't really know how to do that. So he prefers being a kid because he can get away with more. Yeah. And he can make mistakes. And I just wonder like how many, how, like how many movies did dummy actually accidentally watch? to pick up on that <laughs> yeah um, yeah yeah but it's a real like that's one of the things of a preteen that really gets it like when te when preteens especially get in trouble they often revert directly so this is like you know 9 10 to 12 13 depending on the child they revert to like five or six year old behavior yeah because they used to get away with stuff they used to get away with stuff and it was usually for for a majority of children the time where their mistakes had the least amount of like punitive punishment with them. Yeah. Like, mistakes were often treated as a growing experience instead of punitive. And that's a little bit like what he exhibits here. And that just like, I read that scene and like closed my laptop for a minute and I was like, yep, that's childhood. <laughs> that's adulthood. Yeah. Like I would like to be tiny again. So I don't have all these responsibilities. That makes sense to me. And we can go back to talking like we did in the creator corner about, um, you know, this concept of like, uh, if you make your child too perfect or too precocious or too special or too adorable, that that can turn some people off. But DJ is adorable and funny and also challenging and frustrating. And I think that he really is a good example of how you can make a realistic child also be a character that people love for their complexity and that he a child character does not have to be perfect and in fact shouldn't be perfect if you're trying to write a realistic character but that doesn't mean that they're not cute that they're not you know a kid you'd like to have <laughs> yeah this is also um for Steve, I think there's a lot of like this it's it it's an interesting exploration of some of the aspects of Steve's character because he he steps in right away. He like he can he can understand the places where Tony struggles here and he recognizes what dummy needs early on. But as time goes on, you get to see more and more of how shaken he is, how challenging he finds this, how unsure he is. And that a lot of the time when he's with dummy and he seems comfortable and confident, it's a front that he's putting on for the kid. And you even see that there are times when he's putting on a front for Tony too. And the more that's challenged and also the more of himself that he lets Tony see, the more you get to see that it isn't easy for him. He just has a good understanding of, of, putting what the child needs ahead of his own emotional satisfaction and both the importance of that, but also the fact that if he doesn't then seek out his own outlets, his own places to be, you know, selfish or examine his own feelings that 
you, you can't just ignore that forever. You know, he hits walls where he's just run out. And Tony is more likely to, to fluctuate more within a smaller period of time. He's more up and down. He has moments where everything's easy, moments where everything's hard, but it's almost like a constant outlet. So he fluctuates more, but steadily, more steadily. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. Whereas, and that fits Steve's personality kind of in general, where he yeah. is, uh, like he is the one who is always in charge, not only of other people, but of himself. Yeah. And he's, he's used to having to, you know, like if we look at Canon, we see when Peggy dies, he has to go be in a hallway by himself. And, um, you know, there's just this constant need for him to put on a brave face and, and look like he's in control and be a representative of a certain approach to things, a certain stoicism. But it doesn't mean he doesn't have feelings. He's, you know, he suffers greatly, but by himself. And the addition of DJ to their relationship forces him to approach that part of himself, I think, sooner and more intensely than it would have if it were just the two of them. Yeah, and I think in, for me, one of the dynamics of Steve Tony in particular is, is that idea of masks and that each of them wears, each of them is a performer all the time in various ways. And that Steve's performance, like he never really left the USO girls. Yeah. He just, he just transitioned roles. He just went from spandex to Kevlar. And it's still a performance because fundamentally, like, Fundamentally, he's lonely and in pain <laughs> yeah. like, all the time. And the people that he can let those masks down with, like in canon, we know it's Nat and Sam and Bucky and Tony, like they're the ones that teach him how to be himself in a way as they, as they reflect him back to himself. And that, might, that sounds messy, but I, I hope that was clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And DJ becomes a part of that in this as well, that DJ reflects back to Steve part of the caretaker that Steve attempts to be as Cap. And DJ lets him be it as Steve in, in a really, like DJ has no idea who Cap is and doesn't really care, in, it, especially at the beginning. Like Dummy understands that Cap is a role, but like not in the same way that anybody else does. And the Steve-ness of Steve is what's significantly more important to that relationship than anything else. And I think that allows him then to, yeah, to be more vulnerable with Tony quicker than he would have. Yeah. Um, and their apology scenes were some of my favorite as well. Like, hey, I really fucked this up. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to work this out together because none of us know what we're doing. Yeah. They, there's, a, there's a great way of having you know, there's still emotional development. There's still an arc there and, and Sisal writes, you know, misunderstandings and, and, uh, and uh, you know, the kinds of tropes that we like to read in a fic that's ultimately a romance. But yeah, um, with this layer of, of adult communication, which means, you know, it is at times honest. It is at times dishonest, even sometimes to, you know, oneself. Um, but it's, it's there. It's not just a complete vacuum of communication. It's a real attempt, even if it's not always successful. There's so, something so else. Sorry, go oh, ahead. There's something else that uh, I would say is a, a, a trope of found kid fix, and that's the concept of it only being temporary. And I think that's an interesting thing to explore that 
um, you know, it comes into play in de-aging fix as well. Uh, though with de-aging fix, your the expectation from the reader is it sort of has to be temporary. Whereas with this one, you know, you're, you really are kind of torn during uh, the first fic if you want him to be a bot again or not. Like he's, he's such, I don't know. I, I think that the reader feels as much as Tony, as Tony and Steve do that if they were asked to choose, they wouldn't be able to. And Tony thinks or says more than once that he wants it to be Dummy's choice. And then ultimately, obviously, it, it ends up essentially being his choice. But yeah, I, I just think that the temporary, the is this temporary, you know, Steve tends to be more, he's a child now, so we have to treat him like a child. Tony tends to be more, he's going to turn back into a bot someday. And I feel like we see a lot of Tony's fear of loss, which is obviously one of the big themes of the first one. Um, and also like weirdly, but as a, a foster pet mama, I've had about 70 foster pets and this idea of loving something temporary is something that I'm really connected to. And I get asked more than any other question. When I tell people that I'm a foster, people say, oh my God, I would fall in love with them. I couldn't possibly do it. And my answer is always, yeah, I fall in love with them. Of course I fall in love with them. I care for them. I love them very deeply, but I know that they're here temporarily. So my love isn't lessened by the fact that I know they're leaving. And I don't think I love them any less, but I do love them differently, I guess. And part of that love is being happy when they leave because I know that they're going, you know, onto their actual life and that it opens up space for me to be a transition space for some other animal in need. And I think that that that's uh, something that, you know, that feeling of temporariness is something that all parents face because they know, as you were talking before, they're going to have to transition from being a parent to being a friend. And when you have one of these fix where it's like, here's a kid, we don't know what's going to happen with it. You get that like dialed up to 3 million. Yeah. And then you add this into their, that their lives are very like the threat of death constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is always temporary in a way like it's one of the I mean we can all talk about that that's the reason that Tony flew himself into the into the nuke hole you know like death isn't death is such a it feel like to quote Hamilton like I imagine death so much it feels more like a memory like they know what that is intimately that life is really fleeting and Tony always wants to kind of like jumpstart that yeah. <laughs> and like fine like let's just get it over with um, it's, and it totally changes when you have a, a something that relies on you now yeah and he and that's a that's part of his journey in this in the whole work actually is how yeah. to how to be remain himself and still live for other people and what that kind of looks like and arguably that's his journey in canon so yeah and there's this question of like you know if you sacrifice yourself for other people there's validity in that, but there's also the question of, you know, who's who's going to be there to save them now that you're gone kind of thing. Yeah. It matters too. And and when you've got this singular life that is, you know, your, your family, your piece of your heart, then, you know, how do you now make those judgment calls about what sacrifice is the most important sacrifice? 
wow, we got deep here. <laughs> we did. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, this is the thing. <laughs> this fic explored so much. Yeah. That if you were like me and you didn't read this before, we cannot recommend it highly enough. Not only for the, the, the kid parent aspect, um, but please read it just for Coulson. <laughs> so it's just so perfect. It like made me ache. Um, and we'd love to hear what, what you think about anything we brought up, anything we didn't bring up. I mean, this is a masterwork, so obviously we missed things. And uh, yeah, we just- Yeah, it's a conversation I'd love to keep going. And I, I wanna hear, you know, on all the things on this on this episode, but also for this, parents who who read these stories, do you feel differently? Like how did it, how did they affect you? Or, you know, maybe some people read this before they had kids and they have kids now. And, you know, those are some perspectives I would absolutely love to hear from. Absolutely. So hit us up in all the usual places. Okay, Ferret, it's time for more Animal Corner. The people have spoken. (laughs) I can't wait. Uh, My main question today regards how you write pets, I guess. And that's a little broad. So let me explain kind of where I'm coming from. So when I write really any fic, I put as many puppies in it as I can. (laughs) Um, Largely because like I grew up with dogs and puppies and I know the mechanics of them in a way and how humans interact with them and how Mm -hmm. I interact with them and all that. And I'm not as familiar with other animals. And so I default to puppies. But I am sure that there are other animals that like in a fic would be really good to write with a kid. Like maybe it would serve as a shorthand for saying something about the kid's personality, or maybe it would really let you, you know, like maybe instead of robots, Tony has rats. I don't know. But like, what would, like, what kind of, you know, there's, what kind of animals would be fun to write, I guess, that we, most of us don't think of. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I mean, I could talk all day about like specifically how to write certain animals. But again, I think it comes back to the same stuff we were talking about with KidFic in that ultimately your best bet is to find videos and just watch them. So if you want to write a guinea pig into your story, go find videos about guinea pigs. You can find out what they sound like, how they move, what kind of space they should live in. So I'm going to sort of leave that aside though if anybody has specific questions about how to write a specific animal absolutely hit me up in discord and i'm happy to talk about that all day that's what she of, is very very happy to talk about very that. very happy to talk about it um but more broadly sort of just like how to choose what kind of animal and should you include include an animal i'd say that i mean first of all what you said is interesting about it being a shorthand for what a character is like um in my years of experience with animal owners, I would say that you can sort of broadly divide animal owners into two categories. And one is people who like animals in their space so that they can observe them and cohabitate with them. And then there are people who like having animals in their space so that they can actively interact with them. So people who like fish tanks tend to be observers. Additionally, people who prefer reptiles, not that you can't handle reptiles, but snakes and lizards tend towards observation more than they tend towards interaction. Um, I even know people who have cats and they don't really pick them up or pet them or anything. They just like sharing their space with them. Is that a bird thing too? Because birds 
pet birds have always seemed to me as something you look at? No, actually, I mean, it really depends on the bird, but birds tend okay. to bond very closely with specific person or people, usually one specific person. So if you're meeting a stranger's bird, it's highly unlikely they're going to be interested in you. Um, though I have met a few birds that were extremely friendly with anyone who picked them up and that was amazing. But um, for domestic birds, as domestic as a bird can possibly be, which isn't really much, but um, birds that people keep as pets, uh, they, they can be very interactive. I think it varies a lot. It depends on the bird and it depends on the bird owner. So I wouldn't necessarily say the birds fall into one category. They can fall into either and it's just about how their owner interacts with them. But most of the bird people I know are kind of like extra bonded with their bird and it's a very like one-one relationship. <laughs> Got it. But um but yeah so I think if you if you want to say something about the kid then what pet they would choose could say something about them. If they want a dog then usually that means it's a kid that wants something that they can touch, something that they can play with there, it implies that they have a certain expectation of being active with the dog. Like if you think about sort of our stereotypes about what a dog ex owning experience would be like, that's how a kid is going to conceptualize it. So they're going to have seen videos of dogs jumping up and licking kids' faces and stuff like that. If that's repulsive to them, then a dog is unlikely to be the pet that they'd ask for. Um, but something like fish, is, is great for a kid who prefers to observe, who prefers to be quiet, maybe less active, but um, even has a more of a scientific interest in animals, you know, create an ecosystem and let it exist on its own and uh, observe it instead of necessarily interacting with it. Um, you know, even altering is, you know, buying plants and stuff like that to make up the aquarium. That can be a hobby and a passion, but it's, it's a very different category than sitting on a floor with a cat in your lap and kissing their face you know what I mean yeah 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 so it could be really so especially if you're writing a kid who um you know like I think about some of the kid fics I've read where like for instance a really common trope in Stony is to have Peter as their son mm -hmm. um, obviously and sometimes he's adopted and one of the ways that in like a lot of adoption texts that I've read professionally is to is to help bond with the with a child can be through a pet Mm -hmm. um, and they, and it's a project that you can do together um, in a way that is caring and you're, you're kind of working together. Um, and it would be very different working with a child who wanted to care for a fish than working with a child who wanted to care for you know, like a cat. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got some other ones like turtles really fascinate me because there are people that like to take their turtles for walks. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like that also would hit me more as an observation one. So I guess it, it could be it, it sounds to me like it could be a lot more creative than we as fic writers often seem to give it credit for, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think there's a lot of depth that you could explore there. And I do think that just like with kids, animals sometimes aren't really characters in the story. They're just kind of like a, a plot device or an empty placeholder to sort of represent something else. But if you really want the animal to be a character or to have depth or to be an accurate representation of what owning that pet is like, then beyond thinking about what the type of pet represents and from a character characterization standpoint, you also have to think about how the necessities of the animal will affect how you have to write your fic. 
So a dog, for instance, needs to be taken outside multiple times a day to use the bathroom. They have to be fed. Usually the average is twice a day. Some dogs are fed once or three times a day. Um, they need walks. They need a lot of attention. They can be destructive, especially puppies. Puppies also are a lot like human babies. They don't sleep through the night. They need to be potty trained. They put everything in their mouths. And it's not uncommon for a puppy to end up weighing the same or more than their human child friend. So something to consider if you include a puppy in the story is that it needs to be taken care of even when the characters are busy having a plot. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely, as you've been talking, I've definitely been guilty of <laughs> a puppy and then never doing anything with it. So I need yeah. to be more conscious of that in the future. Yeah. Again, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, it's an it's a authorial choice whether you're going to make this dog a real dog who's a character in the story or, you know, a foil for something else. And that's not, I'm not here to say what's right or wrong, but if you're attempting to write a realistic dog, then dogs need a lot of attention. And it's one thing to sort of leave space but not mention it in a story. But if, say, your characters end up, you know, getting caught in a snowstorm in a cabin for six days and they come back and the dog is fine. <laughs> then, oh, that, that would yank me right out of the story, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would be a little unrealistic. But then you can think about, you know, if you want to look beyond what a puppy can do, uh, there's cats can, can be independent for a lot longer. As long as they have food and water and litter, cats can be left alone for a couple of days and they're generally okay. Um, Jarvis would be able to basically look after a cat, whereas it would be pretty difficult for him to look after a dog. Um, cats can also be sort of uh, quieter and less active, or they can be very active. Kittens need a lot of attention like puppies do, um, but they're also smaller and sort of easier to handle, generally, uh, and less likely to put everything in their mouths, oddly enough. But even beyond cats and dogs, um, a lot of parents, there's sort of an interesting trajectory I see amongst my clients where we call it the checklist and, um, you know, we'll get a call for a new, a new client who needs dog walking services or whatever. And we'll go and it's like, okay, they just bought their first house. It's a young couple. They're in their mid twenties to late twenties. They've just got a new puppy from a breeder almost certainly a doodle in this day and age, but the breed changes from decade to decade. Right now the fat is doodles. So they have a doodle puppy. They're very devoted to it. They've bought everything it could possibly need. They hire us. We're doing dog walking services for them. It's usually less than 18 months. One of them's pregnant. We start seeing the, uh, the um, ultrasound pictures on the fridge and stuff like that when we come. And then they have the baby. And then the puppy's now grown up and is about a year old, which is pretty challenging time to have a dog and they have a new baby. And it seems like chaos to me, but this is a checklist that I cannot tell you how many people go through. So it's actually, I would, I would say much, much, much more common to get the puppy before the baby. But most people in fiction get the puppy for the baby. That doesn't usually happen in real life. Interesting. <laughs> when kids get old enough to want a pet, puppy is usually the last one that parents want to get for their kids because they've just managed to get their kids out of diapers and talking and all of those things. And a puppy is basically a baby that grows into a two-year-old and never gets older. And by the time that they've had a 
a kid or multiple kids, they are no, like if it's like, if we were going to do that again, we would have another kid. And especially if the kid is the one asking for a pet, they want a pet that is going to be less of a responsibility for the parent. So I see hamsters are a huge one. They're caged pets, so they're contained when they're not actively being played with. They are relatively low involvement. They are cheap, and they only live for about two years, so if it doesn't go well, you don't have a long commitment. <laughs> I, If I were going to tangent and, and say which pet I would actually recommend for kids, I would say rats are a much better choice than hamsters because hamsters are A, nocturnal, and B, not social particularly at all. You may have had a lovely hamster. I have had a lovely hamster. I'm just saying in general, hamsters don't really love people that much and they're not social and they want to sleep all day. Rats are not. They adjust their schedule to whatever their environment suggests and they're very social and they love people. So those considerations are also sort of the things that you might want the parents in your fix to think about if they are getting a pet for their kid. Puppies and kittens usually are not that common. Most of the kittens that I adopt out as a foster go to parents of kids that are older, so 12 plus, and they have an expectation that their kids are gonna do some of the work. Uh, and most dogs go to families with teens. That's really interesting because I'm thinking back on like in my personal life, people that I know, and then also how dogs have always worked in my family. Mm. Um, and like my, when I was born, my de- my parents had a golden retriever um, who was, I believe at the time, three mm-hmm. um, and a cat. And then um, when Shannon passed away a couple years later, we got the world's most OCD golden retriever. <laughs> um, but like, so she was a puppy when I was in like seventh grade. Right. Um, and so like a, 11, 11-ish, like 10, 11, 12-ish. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, we were definitely, we definitely um, were in charge of a lot of her care. Yeah. For sure, so. So yeah, it's pretty unusual for, I mean, unless the parents are super, super, super pet people and they never ever want to be without pets for themselves, that's kind of a different category entirely. But it's, I find it's pretty unusual for people to to acquire a new animal, especially a young animal, when they have kids that are between babyhood and about seven. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, not to say that nobody does or that you shouldn't put it in a fic, but if you're sort of making those parental considerations when you're deciding what animal you should get, then, I mean, one option is to make it sort of an accident or, you know, someone left a kitten on the doorstep kind of thing. Uh, and then that animal can become, you know, an actual part of the story and that they can be hard to manage and they can be a lot. And when you have a young kid, that makes it even harder to handle them. And if you want to put your characters through that, then that's a, certainly a way to do it. But yeah, if you kind of want to show the personality of the kid that you have, maybe they're a little older and they're ready to ask for a pet and the parent wants to provide them with a pet, then there are definitely some other options that are maybe more, you know, like rats are social, they're outgoing, they're good for kids that are also outgoing and that they're going to be willing to pick them up and pet them and stuff like that. Something like a rabbit, generally they don't love being picked up and they need you to be still and quiet because they're prey animals for them to come to you. So a kid that picks a rabbit is a kid that's willing to sit and wait and let the pet come to them. 
Now, speaking for your three selves in a trench coat, mm-hmm. what kind of child do you go to, Miss Ferret? Oh, um, ferrets are extremely outgoing. I've never met a ferret that was afraid of anything. They're like basically invincible. So I actually love ferrets for kids in that, like I used to, I used to actually teach an education outreach class at a humane society. And um, I would go and I talk about rescue and I talk about how kids can get engaged with rescue and the difference between rescuing an animal and buying an animal. And we would talk about rats and rat care because their classroom had pet rats that um, some of their pet rats were actually provided by my rescue and that was a whole big thing. Um, But I would bring my ferrets. I had three ferrets at the time and I would give them a talk about ferrets because most of them had never seen a ferret before. And I would talk about how unbelievably difficult ferrets are to care for because they are, they take a huge amount of effort and energy. They need a lot of cleaning. They need a lot of space. They need a lot of mental stimulation. And then I would basically throw a bunch of tunnels into the middle of the room, hand out the three ferrets to the kids that could remember three trivia facts from my speech. And then I would just sit on the table and let them go hog wild because I was never worried that the ferrets would get hurt because they're completely indestructible and they just, they don't care how you pick them up. They don't care how you twist them or bend them or wiggle them about. They can, you'll feed them into a tube and they don't care. You can hand them off and they don't care. We used to um, run tunnels down the stairs and they'd slide down the stairs in the tunnel. We used to play ferret bowling where you slide them down a tile hall and they smash into some cans and knock them over. They're really like, It was a great opportunity for kids to get to interact with animals without constantly being told, careful, careful, don't push too hard, don't pull their ear, like don't pull their tail, you know, be nice, hold them this way, don't hold them that way. A lot of kids' first introductions to animals is a lot of no's. And it's a necessity because, you know, they could accidentally hurt them. And with the ferrets, it was great because it was like, just try everything. They'll let you know if they're uncomfortable and you hold them a different way. Like, be bold. And they really got a chance to experiment and engage with them and sort of make their own little kid decisions and it was really cool to watch them like you could see them learn you could see them try to pick the ferret up just from the like top end and realize that they are actually condoms full of sand and that that didn't work very well and they'd have to scoop the bum up too and how to hand them to each other and diggy would inevitably fall asleep in someone's lap and they thought that was great so um yeah, I actually think that ferrets are great for kids and terrible for parents because they're a huge amount of work. So I'd always say, how many of you are going to go home and ask your parents if you can have a ferret? And all the kids would be like, yes. And I would be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> your parents will never, ever speak to me again. Yeah. yeah, it was like, no, you're not allowed to do that. So, well, I think this is a really great conversation to kind of say, here are some, you know, like, the thing with writing fic is that we can all, I mean, we write like sentient toasters in this fandom for crying yeah. out loud. Like, you can do whatever you want. But if you're looking to maybe have a richer experience with animals in your fic, here are some ways to do it. And I think that's a really great uh, kind of thought process that even just as you're plotting a fic and thinking, what if, um, you know, thinking a little bit past puppies and kittens is, a, is really interesting. So thank you, Fair.
So before we transition into a couple other minis after that incredible animal talk, we just want to offer two quick notes. First of all, we do have a rec list for this particular episode that is full of kid fic, art, and fic, and it is our longest list since the BDSM fic, so it appears that Fair and I are not the only people that love this particular subgenre. <laughs> uh, so major shout out to the Discord for flooding that channel. Marie and I definitely got carpal tunnel uh, putting the spreadsheet together. Um, so thanks so much for that. Also, this would normally be the section of the podcast in which we talk about what you guys said to us in the past couple weeks. And what we've really noticed is that there was quite a lot of very personal responses to the last episode's content. I personally got a couple direct messages. There was a lot of chat on our server about how it was a very helpful episode to a lot of people. And it really made them examine some of their own biases. And it all felt very intimate enough that we don't feel comfortable reading anything out specifically. But we want everyone who's already listened and responded to know that we deeply, deeply appreciate that you went there with us and that you engaged and that you have been incredibly responsive and respectful to the four people who shared such vulnerability with us and we can all continue to learn in such a beautiful way. We're really, really grateful. And we will, whenever you listen to those episodes, whether it is when they aired, which is in the summer of 2020, or you're listening to this sometime in the far future. In the future. Uh, in the future. <laughs> uh, we would still love to know always what you think about episodes. So if you're catching up with us, never ever hesitate. Uh, to drop in to the Discord server or into our Tumblr asks or into into wherever our Tumblr... I think our Twitter DMs are open. I don't even know. Um, <laughs> what we is love <laughs> We sometimes remember we have... Do we Twitter. have an Instagram? <laughs> we have an Instagram, yes, um, that I occasionally update. Guys, this is a, we're, this is a labor of love. Um, but we always want to hear what you think, so never hesitate to let us know. In today's Professor Flames History Corner, we're going to talk a little bit about zines. A zine, by the way, is basically a self-published, small circulation collection of works for a certain community. It is not a commercial entity. That is what magazines are for. And instead, the zine, the creation themselves and the community, like that's, what the, that's the point of the zine. Although, to be honest... The definition of a zine is that it calls itself a zine. So there's some flexibility there. Like your mileage may vary on what this actually looks like. But there is a real important fandom element to a zine because the very first things to be called zines were actually based around sci-fi. Other short publications at the time, and even now, are pamphlets or handouts or just general ephemera. But zine and fanzine are interchangeable because the relationship is so strong. So zines have been around since at least the 1930s um, in the United States. There's some argument that in the UK they, they happened a little bit before this. Uh, but let's, let's stick with the US for now just because I know that for sure. So 1930s and the very first kind of acknowledged one within American fandom studies is The Comet which was collated by the Science Correspondence Club in Chicago. Because the way this used to work is that you literally wrote away 
sent a self-addressed stamped envelope. I don't know if anybody like, you know, kids ask your parents, but if anybody remembers those commercials from when you were growing up, Annette was like, and mail away a self-addressed stamp envelope to this P.O. box and get your moon shoes. A good old SAS. <laughs> yes, which is exactly what, which is zines. That's what you used to do. They weren't subscription services. There wasn't the infrastructure for that. You wrote away every single quarter or whatever. So there were a bunch of other ones in the 40s and 50s. And to be honest, zines were the first Discord servers of fandom. It was through them that fanfic circulated, that headcanons were born, that debates happened between fans. Before there was Zanga and LiveJournal and fanfic and AO3, there were zines. The most famous one are arguably is Spockanalia, which launched in 1967. And it marked a significant shift in the relationship between fans and creators in general. For example, a letter writing campaign that was launched kind of through the zine led to the original Star Trek show being renewed for a further season. That's the first time that it ever happened. So these guys are the original, you know, hashtag save our show. And that happened through a zine. So truly everything old is new again. Fandom is like the weather in Texas. If you don't like it, just give it a few minutes and it'll change. And we just kind of keep recycling the same patterns over and over again. But anyway, digress. The 70s and 80s saw zines going from sci-fi kind of more into music and lifestyle. So the punk scene in particular in Los Angeles and New York and London is generally acknowledged as this wide producer of zines. And I'll tell you what, the zine collection at the British Library is wild. Like, just the, like, you know, hand-scrawled notes of interviews with the Sex Pistols that, like, people just photocopied on mimeograph machines and you paid five cents for and it got mailed to your house. Like, it's just the most basic, I love this thing and so I'm creating this thing um, in, a, in just a really, really visceral way. I love looking at zines. They're just fascinating to me. So the 90s added a feminist flair to the art form and we see a lot of Riot Girl zines. And if you aren't familiar with Riot Girl, please, I should be saying, sorry, Riot Girl. <laughs> um, please, please educate yourself on, on that movement. It is utterly amazing. And then of course the internet happened and the best collection of kind of online zines especially but also of the riot girl zines so gender-based zines the biggest collections at duke university um and most of their collection is digitized so i've thrown the link in the show notes um and you can have a, a good old flick through so there is now online zines about everything um including marvel as of this recording According to fan lore, there are 63 Marvel fandom zines, and we will link them in the show notes for you to check out. You may or may not know that there's actually a Steve Tony zine in the works right now. There's an amazing group of writers and artists involved, and we're rapidly approaching the final due date for the pieces for that zine, which means that I think very soon you should be seeing more info about how you can get a copy of this wonderful piece of Sony creativity in your own hot little hands very, very, very soon. If you haven't heard of it and you want to know more, including who's going to be involved, we'll link the Tumblr for the zine in the show notes. I know I have finished my pieces and it's just killing me that I can't talk about them. Yeah, I am so excited for this thing. I'm so, so excited. I can't wait to read everybody's works when it comes out. So, um, but there's also like when I was scrolling through the fan lore site today, there's a zine entirely for Supreme Family of just all conversations about 
Strange, Tony, and Peter. Wow. Um, there is, there, it's, it's as variety, like as varied, I think in some ways as the AO3 tags are, <laughs> like yeah. it's really beautiful. Um, so zines are a huge part of fandom history and current fandom life that a lot of fans may never have encountered. I've found throughout um, a lot of my academic studies into how people communicate, zines are frequently kind of dismissed because they're made by fans for fans as a community. But you all know that here we celebrate fans, obviously. And we think that how we come together as a community and create these characters that we love is a really, really beautiful mark of how we do life together. And zines are a massive part of, of how we've always done that. They've nurtured ways for fans to interact before the ease of the internet. And we owe a huge debt of gratitude to everyone who ran and participated in the ones in days of yore. And also a huge debt to everyone who continues to do so to this day and keeps up this very particular and beautiful form of fan creation. So that is in a nutshell, your basic history of zines. We've thrown a bunch of links in the show notes. We'll definitely encourage you. And we'll be talking more in the future about the Steve's Tony zine in particular. Um, but if anyone is listening and they run their own zine and I have not mentioned it or you don't think I know about it, I want to know about it. And we would love to share it with everybody else. And we'd love to talk to you about why you have your zine. So please share your stories about your interaction with zines, whether you created them or wrote for them, or you're in the Steve Tony zine and you are also dying to talk about it and are under a gag order <laughs> and can't. Um, we would love to hear from you. Please hit us up in the comments um, and tell us what you think about zines. And that has been Professor Flame's History Corner. And if you want to get involved in fandom in other ways, as always up next, we have our events forecast. fandom this is only more love here once again to tell you all about what's going on challenge wise in a marvel fandom near you a brief note before i begin with the current events you'll be able to find everything i mention in this forecast linked and explained in the show notes of each episode over on podonthesuit.com okay so now for the numerous and fun events that are happening we talked about the various initiatives springing up to try and raise money for Black Lives Matter last time. Creators, signups have arrived. Marvel fans for BLM signups will run until June 28th, with Browsing Week opening on June 29th and running till July 5th. And finally, the auction itself will take place July 6th through July 12th. Another initiative happening is the Pan Fandom BLM Equality Auction, which runs on Dreamwidth. Offers have been posted and can be browsed and bid on until June 26th. The Tiny Reverse Bang is underway. Its submission period just started and will go on until July 10th, while the round itself is set to last until September for Big Bang season. Steve Tony artists, show us your talent. We want to love it. The Fanworks Like It's 2012 Prompt Fest just hit the one-month-left mark this week. If you long for simpler times and tower fix, this is the event for you. All universes are welcome, and a few are already represented in the prompts. But prompting also stays open 
until the end of the fest on July 13th, so you can always add to them. There is no claiming required, and no minimums or restrictions on the type of fills you can make. Have fun! You being a fluff bunny, an angst weasel, or a flankst hybrid does not change the fact that the Steve Tony games have been ongoing for a week, and they're going strong with 96 stony works already posted at the time of preparing this forecast. For those unfamiliar with the games, it takes the form of a bingo card with prompts both traditionally fluffy or angsty, and both teams battle through their fills to get the most points. Check out the rules for more info, or join the Discord server to ask any and all questions. Your hosts are on opposite teams of this for some added flare Civil War fun. Claiming for the Marvel Undercover Prompt Fest is open, and will stay open until July 12th. Posting will begin on July 13th. As a reminder, this year's theme is music, so take a look at the prompts, listen to some of the songs, and maybe they'll spark something. Artist signups for The Iron Husband's Big Bang are only open until tomorrow, June 22nd. So if the MIT husbands are your jam, give it a go. Claims will happen on July 3rd, and posting will begin on July 31st. Sam and Steve are now packing their bags and checking for any missed sunscreen tubes for their Sam-Steve vacation week which will start in a week on June 28th and run through July 4th. The mods are posting some prompts on the DWCOM for inspiration. At the same time, Tony and Steven will have their own downtime with the Iron Strange Week, which will go on from June 28th through July 11th, including one week of amnesty to give people more time to get their works in. There are no minimum requirements either, and every form of media is allowed. On the matter of ship weeks, the Sinful Spider Week announced its schedule, rules, and prompts. So if you ship Tony or Steve with Peter, give their blog a look. It will run from August 23rd to 29th, so you'll have plenty of time to prepare. Also on the charity front, Marvel Trump's Hate is looking for mods to help for their next edition for both the events running and for their event server. Both those positions would require you to be available throughout the week from the start of September to the start of November. If you're interested in helping for this staple of our fandom, follow the link in our show notes for more information and contact links. The Cap I Am Bingo and Comment Bingo, Cap I Am Kink Meme, and Lights on Park Avenue and Starker Festival's Starker Summer Bingo are still open for participant signups and or contributions, and the links to all of these are still in our show notes of the past episodes. The Cap IM BB mods are also holding Discord chats for authors, so please keep an eye out for the announcements of the time they'll take place, as they will vary to catch as many time zones as possible until September. This has been your events forecast. I'll see you next episode. Until then, please be safe, be well, and of course, happy shipping. Hello, fandom. This is Iron Lawyer. 
and I'm Catalina Hart, aka Cat, and we are here to update you on the ongoing Steve Tony games. First, we'd like to thank everyone who has participated so far. You have all blown our expectations out of the water. We had some very exciting first two weeks of the games. Before we continue, here's a quick reminder how the games work. Both teams share a bingo card and create works for the prompts. Creating for prompts that are marked as typically belonging to the other team earns you double points. There are also several bonus prompts you can include to maximize points. And best of all, you don't need to sign up and can create for both teams if you want. We are recording this on Friday and the current scores are 695 to 667 for Team Angst. But we're sure the scores are rising as we speak. If you want to see the current scores more often than our once a week scoreboard posts, you can join our Discord or check out the official Phil's spreadsheet which comes with links to all the wonderful creations you have made. There are 106 fills in total at the moment. The honour of the first submitted fill went to Team Angst, but Team Fluff didn't take long to catch up and managed to get the first bingo and the first blackout of the games. At the moment, both teams have seven bingos and one blackout. One thing we are very happy about is that everyone is taking chances in creating for smaller universes and even trying out new fanwork types for them. So far, Team Angst has created for 16 different canon universes that are neither the MCU nor the main comics universe 616, and Team Fluff has created for 15 such universes. The fanwork types submitted for Team Angst so far are thick. Art, Potfix, Vits, Edits, Playlists, and Reclists. Team Fluff is still missing Potfix and Vits. If the type of fan work you do hasn't been listed, feel free to check in with the mods to see if it's able to be submitted. We love seeing all the different types of fan works we haven't even thought of. Likewise, we love that people have submitted works that aren't in English. At the moment, we have one German poem, one French fic, one Spanish, one Portuguese, and one Japanese playlist. Remember that for fix and playlist, non-English works get a bonus point. Team Fluff were the first to claim the team achievement points for all canon reference bonus prompts used, for all AU and Tropes bonus prompts used, and for all kink bonus prompts used. Team Angst has claimed the canon reference points as well, but is still missing Aliens Make Them Do It for the AU and Tropes team achievement and Blindfold for the kink bonus prompts. We would also like to give a special shout out to the people who have managed to create fills for the maximum number of points. Sadistic Sparkle submitted three works, a playlist, art, and fic. And Jebia and Be the Flame each submitted a fic worth 14 points. All five of these fills were for Team Fluff. Congratulations! This is it from us for now. We'll be back next episode with more Steve Tony Games updates. Until then, happy creating! And that's a wrap on episode 9. Thanks to Kelsix for our incredible art and the Potscast server for the flood of fantastic recommendations for the Reckless. Of course, to our podcast staff for keeping the wheels on the wagon. And thanks to Sci-Fi Girl 47 for, for providing our plug fic today. Check the show notes for links. 
And thank you, especially to Iron Lawyer and to Kat for providing that personalized update on the Steve Tony games. We feel so special. Um, also, all of you need to join Team Flop. Join Team Angst. Team no, Angst. Join We're going to win. You want to be on the winning team, and Team Angst. You want to join win. Team Flop. We have cake. We have spreadsheets. It's awesome. We have happily ever afters and joy. And you can. Look, you can be on Team Angst and still write a happy ending. Totally valid. You guys no. want that? You want that achy pining? That no, oh, you want yes. happy fluff? No, no. So the flare at Civil War will continue <laughs> for the length of the games. Join Team Fluff, Team Angst, and moving on. Don't forget, Steve's birthday is coming up. Believe it or not, guys, it is almost July. Oh my God, I can't even. I, I cannot relate to that. It sounds <laughs> fake, but okay. Um, <laughs> but we want to celebrate Steve's birthday as amazingly as we celebrated Tony's birthday. We have an AO3 collection. The link will be in the notes. If you create something that can go on AO3, please, please, please post it there. If you post something on Tumblr, please at us, the uh, pot, pot on the suit Tumblr, as well as the tag HBD Steve 2020, because as I'm sure you're all aware, Tumblr is garbage for tags and we're really afraid we lost people last time. So we would much prefer it if you could add us. We are going to do our best to find everybody. But if, if in doubt, you can also DM it to us, send us an ask, what have you. We really, really, really don't want to miss things. So let us know. Get creative. All creations and engagement with Steve's birthday are welcome. You can do art, fic, people bake stuff, make a card, do an animation. Write a text to Steve about how much you love him. Anything. We also really, really love last time some of you sent us uh, your amazing feelings on Tony, on Tony's ships. We want the same thing from Steve. Let us know. Do you love Steve Sam? Are you into Steve Bucky? Something else I haven't even thought of. We want to hear about all your favorite Steve's rare pairs, versions of Steve. Hey, write an amazing article about how much you love pre-serum Steve. I want to hear that and we will get them right on air. So we can't wait to see what you make and we can't wait to celebrate Steve's birthday. And then as always, thanks to you for your comments, questions, engagements. This is, as we say, every single episode, your fandom podcast. And we wanna make it the very best that it can be for you. If you'd like to share your views on fandom, don't forget that you can comment on the website or get in touch with us across any of our socials. Please keep sending secrets and questions, and we'll see you soon for episode 10. You've been listening to Pod on the Suit. Thanks for joining us. 